Welcome to Outspoken Voices, a podcast by and for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer parents, people with LGBTQ parents, future parents, and everyone else who is part of our family journeys. I'm your host, Emily McGranahan, and I am the Director of Family Engagement with Family Equality Council. As part of its commitment to family inclusivity, Johnson's is proud to stand by Family Equality Council's National Adoption Month campaign in support of happy, healthy babies and all the families that love them. Did you know it is legal for LGBTQ people to foster and adopt in every state in the U.S.? Yay! Uh, Did you also know that we have seen a wave of license to discriminate bills in nine states that allow foster care and adoption agencies to discriminate against LGBTQ children, youth and qualified prospective parents? That's nine states and counting, which is why our policy team is working very hard on the Every Child campaign. The Every Child Deserves a Family campaign promotes the best interests of all children in the foster care and adoption system by increasing their access to loving, stable, forever homes and works to ensure safe and supportive care for LGBTQ youth seeking family formation. Today, I am joined by two leaders in the campaign, Julie Cruza and Skylar Baber. Julie Cruza is Family Equality Council's federal policy advocate. She has over 15 years of experience advocating for the LGBTQ community, immigrants, working families, and women and girls. And Skylar Baber is Voice for Adoption's executive director. He has dedicated his professional and volunteer life to the belief that children and youth in the child welfare system need respect, support, and family. Skylar's commitment to improving the futures of children and youth in care is due in large part, to his own life experiences. He spent 12 years in foster care before aging out without a family. When he was 25, his mentor and sixth grade teacher adopted him. Welcome to you both. So to get every episode started, I always ask this question, who is in your family and how was it formed? So Skylar, would you tell me a little bit about your own story? So as you said, I did grow up in the Montana foster care system. Um, I bounced around to a lot of homes. And at the age of 12, I had the option of being adopted by my sixth grade music teacher and mentor. Um, and it didn't happen. And what's, what's the sad part about this story is that it could have been uh, a game changer. So I was offered to be adopted in the sixth grade by my sixth grade music teacher who was providing me Um, activities in local community, um, doing things like theater and acting and singing that would keep me out of my abusive home. Uh, I had the opportunity to be adopted when he he offered, but he was denied because he was a single male um, and a single family at that time wasn't going to be able to adopt very easily, especially a single male. So I was told I was unadoptable and I went Mm -hmm. through a few more homes, end up aging out of the system without a family. and I didn't get to have much contact with him. But he was the one phone number uh, that I memorized back in the day before cell phones were a thing. You actually memorized phone numbers, and he was a single phone number that I remember. Um, and so I would check in every couple of years and just let him know that I was alive. Um, after I aged out, I maintained a relationship with him. I've still never really even lived with him, except for that I go home for holidays now. Um, but it took a few years for me to accept that I maybe could have an adoptive family again because that after you've been told that you're unadoptable, you kind of harden yourself to the idea of family. So we offered at 20 again, and I denied him. So it wasn't until after my grandmother passed, which was his mother and my uh, unofficial grandma, 
um, that we realized that we had become close enough as a family and that adoption was something that we still wanted to pursue. Um, it's easier to get adopted as an adult because you don't have the custody and the paperwork and the processes that are involved with being a ward of the state and a minor. Um, we decided to get adopted on Christmas Eve, um, and it was kind of a cool experience. And it you know, makes Christmas Eve all, all that much more special every single year. Wow. Thank you for sharing. Um, and Julie, just because I love to ask everybody, um, who is in your family and how was it formed? Well, um, I am very close to my family of origin, and um, I uh, met my wife 18 years ago, and we got married five years ago. But before that, I was married to another woman and have two wonderful stepkids who are uh, my son is now uh, 35 years old, my stepdaughter 39, and I have a grandson who is six. So um, that's my family. Thanks. And Julie, you've really been hearing a lot of stories from parents, foster youth, professionals that have to do with the Every Child campaign. People are sharing their stories. You're, you're meeting with a lot of people who have that personal connection to the child welfare system. Are there any stories that have really stuck with you? Yeah. The other day I uh, met with a, a trans uh, young man uh, in his early 20s who aged out of foster care also. And really had horrific uh, experiences in the system. This was in Minnesota. And quoting from his story, he said, I, as an LGBTQ foster youth, I was not allowed to feel comfortable in my environment. They discriminate against you like they basically segregate you from everybody. I couldn't go to the bathroom with other girls without a staff member there. I couldn't sleep in my own room because I had a roommate. I felt as if I was an animal that wasn't good for stock. Uh, now that I'm out of care and on my own, I don't take crap from nobody. I literally am who I am. I don't care. And I've been uh, talking to many LGBTQ uh, foster youth and foster alumni, as well as reading their stories. And unfortunately, many of them say they felt feel they've been treated like animals. And I just mm -hmm. think it's remarkable uh, that the Administration for Children and Families at Health and Human Services uh, is responsible for oversight for our, our, our foster youth and for their safety, well-being, and, and, and permanency. And um, they are, they're, they're failing at their job, as are states mm. that are not ensuring that uh, LGBTQ foster youth are treated well. Mm. And how did both of you come to do this work on the Every Child campaign? Yeah, so actually, um, I was invited by the Family Equality Council um, I'm the director of Voice for Adoption in D.C., and we specifically advocate for children in foster care waiting to be adopted. And some of our work has overlapped with the various discriminatory uh, legislation that has been implemented around the country, um, because right now our country is, is facing a crisis in child welfare, specifically in foster care, where we have more children in care than we have, you know, in recent history. We don't have enough foster homes or what we call beds or places for those children to stay. There's not really been a significant investment in child welfare from the federal government in a long time. And then we're also being attacked by an opioid crisis. And all of these little pieces, believe it or not, overlap with um, the work that both PFLAG and the Family Equality Council do. Um, and Voice for Adoption is excited to advocate for our families because right now with the shortage, we need every family that we can get. And that includes mm -hmm. single families, um, families that are of, of same-sex couples. And, and Julie, what is your own road to the campaign? Well, I advocated for years for LGBT immigrant families to be able to stay together and um, uh, not be deported away from each other. And so this work seems a natural extension of that. You have um, 
LGBT adults that are willing to parent kids that are desperately seeking parents. Um, and you also have people doing innovative work to try to reconnect LGBTQ kids to their families of origin. Um, even though there may have been some neglect or some trauma or some rejection, um, to go back and see, can we connect LGBTQ kids with their families of origin? Maybe it's not with the mom or the grandma or the aunt, but maybe there's someone in that family that's an affirming, accepting person so that this child can be reconnected with their family, reconnected with their culture, uh, and feel accepted and loved for who they are. Um, and if that's not possible, then to find another family uh, that will be loving and supportive and provide a great home for kids. And, you know, Skyler's story about um, his... Uh, teacher who offered to adopt him breaks my heart because I talk to parents every day that are turned away from foster care and adoption agencies because they're gay, because they're transgender, because they're single, and also in very many cases because of their religion, because they're a different mm -hmm. religion um, than the religion of the faith-based agency that is taking care of, of the kids who are wards of the state. And uh, the people who promote this kind of Discrimination say, well, those parents can just go to a different agency. Mm -hmm. But uh, Virginia is one of the states that's, that allows this discrimination. I live near Virginia, and I can't tell you how many parents that uh, that have been through that experience of hours of paperwork, hours of caseworker visits to their homes, and then simply being rejected because of who they are. They're not willing to go through that humiliation again. So could you both explain even a little bit more about what is the Every Child Deserves a Family campaign and why is it important? So the Every Child campaign um, is, is targeted at kind of ending the discrimination that is going on around the country, specifically at children and child welfare. It would protect LGBTQ couples as they attempt to adopt. It would also protect the, 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 the minor or the youth in the situation. Well, and, and so there's, a, there's a, a few reasons that we're doing this. We thought that we had, you know, ultimate protections when marriage equality happened. Um, and that that would really support, you know, children getting families and that sexual orientation would no longer be a factor in creating those families. But now we're seeing kind of a reversal of that where different states are implementing different laws. Um, and we're also looking at an, a time when there is a more conservative uh, um, situation in D.C. Um, and there are little tiny attacks that seem to be happening specifically on um, the children in child welfare that we're, we are tasked with protecting. Um, our concerns are that we believe that children should not have to hide who they are. Um, if we're going to be accepting responsibility for these youth and taking them into our custody, um, we shouldn't have to ask them to be anybody who they are not or to hide any parts of their identity for fear of any type of retaliation, um, specifically from those that are tasked to protect them. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important that they express those identities without fear. And foster care was intended to be a short-term safe haven um, not a long-term care situation. And it's important that they understand that when we take them into our custody, we're going to protect them at all costs. And at all costs means that we elevate the well-being of the child above that of anything else involved in the situation, including the faith. Mm -hmm. um, LGBTQ, LGBTQ foster children are often not provided with the same paths to permanency that are required by statute for all foster youth. Um, a lot of them can end up in group homes or what we call congregate care, um, hospitals or juvenile justice system. Um, and when it comes to youth that are involved in both juvenile justice system as well as child welfare, we call those crossover youth. So, Emily, the campaign is working to end discrimination against foster children based on their sexual orientation or gender identity, um, as well as ending discrimination against potential parents based on 
their sexual orientation, gender identity, or marital status to broaden the pool of homes for all uh, kids in care. And we're trying to do that through passage of federal legislation, the Every Child Deserves a Family Act, um, that would also provide technical assistance to do a better job with our families and our kids. And, um, you know, Skyler really hit the nail on the head that the cardinal rule of child welfare is that the best interest of the child comes first. But nine states have passed laws now um, that say if uh, the provider who's receiving taxpayer dollars to care for these children um, who are wards of the state, uh, if they have religious beliefs, then they can put those beliefs above the best interests of the children. They can turn mm -hmm. away qualified parents in loving homes based on their religious beliefs. Um, and they can not consider the best interests of our child. And a very real concern we have is that um, because these, uh, these agencies are allowed to have, you know, written, clear anti-LGBT policies, that they're discriminating against children as well as against adults. And, and, mm -hmm. and because they're allowed to base placement decisions based on their religious beliefs rather than the best interest of the child, they could look at a gay child or a gender uh, non-conforming child and say, you know what, we don't like how this child is. We want to change this child. We, we're going to place them in an institution or with a family that believes in conversion therapy, um, mm -hmm. which, of course, is a medically discredited practice to that, that is very harmful to try to change the sexual orientation or gender identity of a child. So you meant you mentioned before that often you hear the sort of counter. It's not even an argument, this idea that, well, if uh, someone is being denied or being discriminated against by an agency uh, who wants to be a foster care or adoptive parent, that they should just go elsewhere, which is as you as you really as you clearly pointed out not possible sometimes that's not an option sometimes that you know and it's extremely discouraging so what are, like what happens then for youth in care so if a youth if a child is um in the child welfare system and is placed with an agency that is discriminating against them or seeking to place them in a in a harmful place what about any arguments of like, well, that kid could go to a different agency? Like, it, does that is that even possible? Well, it, it doesn't quite work like that. Mm -hmm. um, when a child is placed in foster care, they're placed in the control of the state. Um, and the agencies that serve those communities, if it's a private organization, they're usually based in a, in a targeted area. And one, we want to try to keep children, if you're removed in a certain area, moving them to a completely different culture or a different state can be even more traumatizing to that youth. Mm -hmm. And within certain rural areas, there are not more than one provider. There may be hours away from another opportunity for that child, but why would we make a child, one, have to commute that far? The family isn't often going to have the ability to get the child to that service. But why in the same situation would we look at any child and tell them that we're not going to serve you because of this, and it's your job to have to go and get these services? Mm -hmm. um, to me, that's traumatizing within itself. I mean, yep. what are we trying to teach the youth that we're trying to protect? right? That mm -hmm. if you don't fit into something, we're, we're taking your life into our hands, yet we're not going to take full responsibility to ensure that you're going to be protected. Yeah. So why is the Every Child campaign so important right now? What is the difference from uh, a few years ago? Or why is this the moment that we need to be talking about this um, and really getting involved? Well, I think Skyler spoke to this earlier when he talked about kind of death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. um, our opponents, frankly, have seen that this is the one area of attack where they're having some success 
in rolling back uh, the rights that uh, LGBT families gained with marriage equality. And unfortunately, they've seen, hey, we could be successful um, if we go after the children, which which seems, um, you know, just unbelievably cruel. But mm-hmm. that's what's happening. Uh, we have nine states that have license to discriminate bills um, for faith-based providers in child welfare or for any provider, uh, an individual caseworker who has certain religious views, or even if it's not based on religion, even if it's just based on their personal beliefs, um, that they can uh, prioritize those over the best interests of children. And five of the nine states that have passed those bills have passed them in the last two years alone. We've had two bills passed this year in Oklahoma and Kansas, and those are the only anti-LGBT bills to pass anywhere in the United States in 2018. So our opponents are um, gaining some momentum. Um, In addition, HHS was just starting to say, you know, we're going to fund people who are trying to serve LGBTQ youth better. We're going to try to find programmatic approaches to serve these youth who are dramatically overrepresented in care. Um, LGBTQ youth uh, form 20% of foster youth, which is about twice the Um, their presence in the population overall, and they suffer much worse outcomes. Are there other information or statistics about why this is in particular important to the LGBTQ community? You just mentioned that LGBTQ youth are are overrepresented from the general population in the system. How, what, why is this also uh, LGBTQ issue broadly or specifically for people who want to be uh, parents or caregivers? When we're talking about overrepresented youth, there's a, a couple populations that are over, overrepresented, and these include children that are LGBTQ, children of color, um, tribal children, and disabled children. And these children often um, don't have the same permanency outcomes, which means they don't get adopted or they don't have a long-term foster care connection. They often age out of the system, means that they, they age out without a family, and they're expected to succeed uh, at all costs on their own. Um, A lot of people don't realize that, you know, for our whole lives, a family provides a lot more than just being a connection. It's also someone that the youth and the family talk to on a regular basis. So who do you call Mm -hmm. when your college shuts down for Christmas break or when you have a financial crisis or a medical crisis? Um, And even today, when you think about it, if you have your own children, and and I know, Julie, you have children and grandchildren, when was the last time that you talked to to your child and when was the last time they actually needed some kind of advice? Um, it's a lifelong connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for my own personal story, when I was in the system, um, not only did I have the option of being adopted, which was a huge loss, but I also had the situation where it was hard to be an LGBTQ youth or a, a gay kid. Um, I had an experience in foster care where um, I technically didn't even identify who I was yet. I wasn't quite set and quite understanding of where I was headed with my own sexuality, which I think is quite common for a lot of young people. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had a foster mom who thought otherwise, and I was put through a situation where it wasn't a medical procedure, but through the faith of the organization, which was Foursquare Evangelical, um, I was uh, exposed to conversion therapy. Uh, and conversion therapy isn't as traumatizing for everybody as it sounds, but it can be something as simple as uh, having a religious, um, kind of a religious mentor who teaches you that, you know, being gay means that you technically have a demon in your soul and that you need to get that demon out of your soul or else you risk burning in hell. That may not be physical abuse and it may not be something that you can see on the surface, but think about that. You know, what happens when we are telling the children that we're intended to protect that, 
you know, whatever's inside of them is wrong and that they are possessed and that they have to get it out. Again, it's another level of abuse. Mm-hmm. And not all the time is it easy to identify. Not all the time are we going to be able to even know that it's happening, but we need to set a hard line that, again, that is not in the best interest in the, and, and elevating the well-being of the child, and that's actually doing more damage. And even today, I'll admit, you know, I'm a somewhat well-adjusted adult. Um, statistically, I'm an anomaly within the foster care system itself because only 2% of children from my background ever go on to obtain a bachelor's degree. Um, wow. And that's a, a shockingly scary statistic because there's a lot of children that have a lot of ambition. And what that tells me is that there are children that are falling, falling through the cracks of society mm-hmm. and that it's not just LGBTQ youth, but if that's a significant portion of the, the system itself, we have to be doing something better and we have to be protecting these children because if we're not protecting them, we're not helping the process, we're only part of the cycle. And Emily, I just want to add to that. There's 20,000 kids a year who age out of foster kids care. And Skylar talked about what that means not to have a forever family for the rest of your life, um, not to have people to go to with your triumphs or your, or your, your challenges. Um, and the fact that there, we have statistics that there's 2 million um, same-sex couples that might consider fostering or adopting, uh, but face barriers yeah. to doing that is uh, mm-hmm. just maddening um, to me. Mm-hmm. For anybody who's listening, and also, you know, I'm, I can always learn more as well, but can you just dive a little bit more into the landscape of the child welfare system? So we've talked about uh, foster care and, and aging out of the system, but then there are people who are adopted from the foster care system. There's foster care that is intended to be temporary. What is that landscape? You just, you definitely just covered a lot of it just in the description. <laughs> There's so many different types of outcomes that we try to get for these young people. But the end goal that we always want to do is we want to find what we call in the industry permanency mm-hmm. or that lifelong connection that a child can have for stability. Um, and federally, there's, there's different types of permanency that are classified. But if we're taking a child into our care, um, our goal should always be to get them stabilized and into a permanent situation. So there's reunification, which is, you know, getting a child back with their um, biological or, or placement that they were in previously. There's kinship care, which is a family member that ends up taking care of a child. And this can be kinship care often becomes adoptive families, or they can also be foster families to get some of that support. Um, there's APLA, which is actually what we call foster care, another permanent planned living arrangement, a.k.a. foster care, or OPLA, um, depending on the state that you're in. Um, APLA legally cannot be a permanency outcome for any child that is over the age of 16. Um, and what we mean by this is that on every child, right, the state maintains what is called a record or a file. And in that file, there's a designation that kind of tells you what is the situation and what is the goal for the child. And so we know, for instance, that there's around 118,000 of those children out of the half a million that are currently in foster care that are waiting to be adopted or have that designation in their file. Wow. Um, then there is adoption as a, a, a form of permanency. The whole goal of all of these systems is, is to, one, treat the trauma of the child, because if you get a child in foster care or a child who's been, you know, abused or neglected or from home to home or from group homes to different cultures, there is going to be shock and there's going to be trauma. Mm-hmm. So the goal is to repair that trauma, get them permanency or connected to an adult, because that gets them connected to society and increases basically every outcome for them. Once a child achieves permanency, their outcomes for education grow, for employment grow up, and a decrease in things such as, you know, becoming a crossover youth. A crossover youth is a child that is involved in both juvenile justice and child welfare. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it also provides them with uh, that lifelong connection that is vital to all of us. And it, it just changes everything. It's a, it's a game changer across the board. And it's why we do what we do is because we know that children do better in families, period. It improves every outcome. Yeah. And then uh, is there a way that this campaign or maybe some of what um, Voice for Adoption is, is doing that is keeping an eye or addressing some of that that support to even prevent children from being involved in the system like at all from the beginning? Um, we know that the reality of the child welfare system is is tied in with racial and economic discrimination and injustice and oppression uh, that at times complicates and really has is involved with that child being removed from a t- particular situation. So, you know, it, it's it's complicated. It's not it's not a simple thing and it's always a traumatic experience. So how do how does the campaign like kind of work with some of those realities or acknowledge some of those realities. Um, Emily, what you say is, is so important because as Skylar said, it's so important for kids to be connected to family, but also to be connected to their cultures and their communities and not to be simply moved around. Um, but what kids urgently need is, is, is a normal life with a strong identity um, with the people they've grown up around. And um, so, yeah, there's been legislation Congress passed this year, Family First, that really focuses on trying to keep kids with their families of origin. And there's some really innovative work being done around the country on this. Unfortunately, what we see from the research, and we don't have good nationwide data because HHS uh, seems to be refusing to collect uh, data on gay kids, even though um, there's a regulation in place telling them they have to, Um but what we see in some communities, what we see a lot of places around the country is that if a kid is rejected by their family of origin because they're gay or transgender or gender nonconforming or have a different gender expression, that a lot of times the provider will say, well, we can't really reunite this kid with their family. And um, what happens is that a lot of these LGBTQ kids um, really get parked in congregate care, which is, is, is not much more, they're group homes, but not much more than really old-fashioned orphanages, mm-hmm. um, and kept there for a long time. And we don't have good data, again, because HHS isn't collecting it on, on LGBTQ parents either, but anecdotally we hear uh, that it's, it's, it's likely that LGBTQ parents are overrepresented in terms of taking sibling pairs and taking, um, uh, taking disabled kids into their homes taking older kids in their homes, you know, the kids that have the hardest time finding forever families. And this campaign is about all of those kids, all of all kids, uh, and especially kids that are disproportionately overrepresented in care, uh, deserve competent care, deserve to be accepted for who they are, for what their culture is, and um, to be kept if they can within their own communities and, and their families of origin, and, uh, you know, to be affirmed. Absolutely. So you've mentioned... A few of the uh, agencies and groups that are really getting involved. Who else is involved in the Every Child campaign? Well, we're excited because we have um, so many faith-based groups. We have businesses. We have uh, child welfare organizations. Of course, we have LGBTQ organizations. We have um, uh, we have civil rights groups generally. But really excitingly, more than half the people that have signed up for the campaign are individuals. Uh, former foster youth, LGBTQ parents, or just people that care about this issue. And that's what we need folks to do. We need folks to go to 
uh, familyquality.org backslash every child and sign up for our, our campaign. And if, and we really need you to tell your stories. When you, do, when you go there, you can go to our Tell Your Story page, and we will provide your story, whether it's a story of foster care, whether it's a story of being an LGBTQ parent, or whether it's just a story of being ally and, and caring about these kids. And we will take your story, and we will present it to your member of Congress, uh, along with the request for them to co-sponsor and help pass the Every Child Deserves a Family Act. And that federal bill is crucially important. It does everything Skyler and I have been talking about. It prohibits discrimination against LGBTQ um, and single parents. It prohibits discrimination against LGBTQ youth. And it helps states do a better job with these kids and families. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to we'll have all of those links in the show notes for the episode. Uh, Julie and Skylar, any final thoughts? You know, I just wanted to say thank you for an opportunity to share our message Um you know, because it's really important that the farther we reach, the, the more support we're going to get. And I think that something that should be pointed out is that there are a lot of people that aren't really informed about this topic. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on within child welfare itself. And if you work within child welfare, it's a big deal. But there's a lot of the general community, including the LGBTQ community, that we still need to hear their stories. And they also need to raise their voices to ensure that this campaign moves forward and that they can share this in their local communities and they can take a look at their local foster care populations. Um, and really try to make a difference wherever they are. And we urge people to speak out, write letters to the editor, um, talk about this in your communities, um, join the campaign, talk about this in your churches, in your workplaces. Um, And if you manage to uh, 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 meet with your elected officials, if they're not hiding from you (laughs) the way so many are these days, then tell them that that you care about this um, and that you want discrimination to end because um, non-discrimination is the foundation of, of good treatment for our kids in care. Thank you both so much. Well, I really encourage, I hope everybody gets involved, checks out the website and uh, wants to learn more and support the Every Child Deserves a Family campaign. Again, thank you for joining us today. Please rate, review and subscribe to Outspoken Voices. You can find Outspoken Voices on our website, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Family Equality Council at familyequality.org and on Facebook and Instagram at Family Equality and on Twitter at Family underscore Equality. Until next time, remember that love, justice, family, and equality is what brings our families together.